So, Lisa, what were you doing when the news broke that the Capitol was being stormed? <laughs> well, I, I was I was swimming. <laughs> so I had a little, I was a little delayed to the uh, news, um, which mm-hmm. was quite shocking when I came out. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ignorance is bliss sometimes. <laughs> there you go. I was in blissful ignorance while I was doing my laps. How about you? Oh, lucky you, lucky you. Well, you know, I had heard some rumblings about something possibly happening a couple of days before. Um, so I made some specific changes to what I planned to do on that day. So I, I think we should talk about it, though. I think there's a serious connection um, between what happened this past week and and really how we train and think as endurance athletes. So let's let's talk about this. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, the the interwebs, as we jokingly say, the interwebs sometimes... give us intel that we might not have had before. And I remember the days leading up to uh, the certification of the Electoral College votes. Um, A lot of groups that I belong to that are endurance sport groups were saying, you know, if you live in the DMV area, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, be aware. And I know people that don't live here probably aren't thinking about it, but you know, the monument is basically our backyard, you know, the Mount Vernon and the trails and, you know, all of those, the Smithsonian's, all of those symbolic places, uh, they're all kind of our backyard where we run, bike, you know, we do all the things when it comes to endurance sport. And so for us to say, oh, well, we're going down to Haynes Point to ride bikes and people do time trials down there because it's flat and uh, tailwind on one side, a headwind on the other. All, All of that is our backyard. And so, when someone tells especially athletes of color not to show up to a certain place to train or rethink what your plan is going to be for your training on this particular day that's a heads up that something is going down and you need to be aware and so you know those were the conversations that were going on prior to but I wasn't quite clear what was going to happen and I never would have thought that all of this Mm -hmm. Um, would have actually happened. But here we are watching the news with our mouths hanging Mm -hmm. wide open, right? Um, Yeah. um, Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. When I came out of my swim, I was like, did did the world end in the last 60 minutes as I was trying to play catch up with what was happening? And I think um, you really raise an important point um, for our listeners to understand that your preparation for January 6th was different to mine, right? So I was aware Mm -hmm. that um, there might be trouble. I didn't predict that they would storm the Capitol, actually enter the Capitol and sit in Nancy Pelosi's office and do all of that stuff. But I knew that probably there would be something. Um, Mm -hmm. But obviously I'm in Colorado, so it's a little different because I'm not there. But I do think that if I were in living around where you are, my preparation would have looked different, right? It's, it's Mm -hmm. mediated because I'm a woman. So I think that affects things, but my whiteness doesn't um, raise the same flags for me with a large group of white people, you know, protesting at the Capitol as it might for you. Um, And I don't think we think about that as an endurance community um, Mm -hmm. enough. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, I, I've thought about it in the past, but I've never been as keenly aware as this year. And even leading up to the election and realizing how, you know, it's been vitriol, you know, especially in this area, but I think it's been vitriol. So, you know, I can't say that I'm not nervous when I see a particular, uh, a truck with a particular flag on the back of it while I'm out riding or running or what have you on my own by myself. Um, and even some of the things that I've done in the past where I've not really thought about it. So I'm, I'm an early bird the majority of the time, especially pre-pandemic. And so it was nothing to get up at four or five o'clock in the morning and go out and do a run with my training partner wherever. Um, it, it was just nothing. We Yes, we thought about our safety and we stayed aware. And, you know, part of me is thinking to myself, if some fool is out here at 430 in the morning that really wants to do something, they must need it bad. I mean, goodness. And so you know, I never really overthought it, but this past year, I really have thought about it. And so there's been times where instead of getting up and going out and doing a run at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning by myself, I'd get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning and do some office work and then go run in the middle of the day when it's daylight and it's more people out. You know, I, I'm not alone. I might run a completely different route, et cetera, ride a different route, what have you. But I've really been strategic on how I'm training. And that's not paranoia. That is mostly based off of real experiences that I've heard and seen in especially the African-American triathlete community. But, you know, I have direct close friends that have been out on a bike ride and cans have been thrown at them and their bikes, or, you know, they've accidentally uh, ridden through a park, which is a public park, but ridden through a park that was having a rally. They didn't know the rally was going on. And Lots of things happen that really should not have to even be thought about. And so, you know, I have thought and second thought <laughs> all of my um, training and it's something that is really lingering. And so for all this to come up this past week is it's not surprising, but it just went left in, I mean, a hard left um, this past week. And I'm not quite sure, you know, what to make of it or even how long I will feel this way as a, as a triathlete, you know, when, when, if ever, will I feel more safe than I do right now? I guess is a question. Yeah. And I think that's an important question. I mean, I was just thinking my friend and I, um, and we were both white women, uh, encountered a rally before the election and, um, mm. it was, it was pretty scary, but our experience of being in that space is almost certainly different than what your experience being in that space would have been. Um, and it just makes me think about, how will 2020 in particular um, be remembered um, and who's doing the remembering, right? Oh, so yeah. Oh, yeah. My, you know, my version of 2020 will not be great. <laughs> um, it certainly won't be, you know, puppies and flowers, but <laughs> I, right. I don't have that um, inflection around um physical violence, fear that I will be attacked based on the political, social, and cultural climate of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So I would wager if you and I were to write down or speak about in 20 years, our experiences of this year, they would be different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I find myself being uh, <laughs> brave or not based on, of course, based on the context, but also based on who I'm with. So for example, you know, I live in an area that's relatively diverse. And so I think about certain things at a certain level. But um, over Thanksgiving, for example, I went down to my parents um, and they live in an extremely conservative part of Southern Virginia. 
I think quite differently there than I do here in Maryland, right outside of Annapolis. I think quite differently there. So, you know, when my children go to play at the playground across the street from where I live, it's predominantly African-American kids that are also playing with them with their predominantly African-American parents. I don't think too much about that. When I go to the playground near my parents and we may be the only African-American family there or we're riding bikes around the park, et cetera, I, I pay more attention. I am keenly alert of what's going on. Um, I may not let my children get further away from me than they normally would. So, you know, given that I'm very aware and you're right, I will remember things a bit differently. Um, and I think part of it is, <laughs> I think the, the question for 2020 is if you have an oppressed identity, not if you were on edge, but how much you were on edge and what caused you to be on edge. And so I, I don't want to use uh, triggering language too loosely, but I do think that there is a, mm -hmm. an edge. Yeah. And, and part of me, a part of me remembered this uh, living on edge feeling when I was looking back um, and Biden and Harris were given their quote unquote acceptance speeches um, in Wilmington, Delaware. And I remember after they gave their speeches and, you know, the fireworks were going up in the air, et cetera. I remember that there was like a, a confetti gun that popped where confetti went everywhere on the stage. And I remember that immediate look of fear of Biden. I think Biden was holding one of his grandchildren. Um, Harris was holding the hand of one of her nieces or nephews. And they immediately jumped when they heard the sound. But then mm -hmm. when they looked and saw the confetti, they were like, oh, oh okay, we're, we're out here having fun, you know, that type of thing. And, and I feel like that feeling carries over to lots of people who have been disenfranchised or just told flat out that this country doesn't care too much about them. Um, I, I feel like we've had that living on edge feeling for a while. And so you're right. It is going to depend on who's telling the doggone story. Yeah. I mean, the, the feeling you're describing predates 2020, obviously, um, but it definitely um, was ringing pretty loud in 2020. And, you know, I think about everything that you described and how then that might affect um, individuals of color, women, um, folks with disabilities, LGBT people, in terms of their decisions in 2021 to engage in endurance sports when the group or environment that they're looking at engaging with is predominantly uh, white, male, straight, able-bodied, right? Um, because we're coming off of this year where there's been such heightened concern and nerves, um, particularly coalescing around race and white supremacy and the oppression of Black and African American people, that do you think, I mean, you, I know you can't speak for everyone, do you think that that will trickle over in a much more visceral way in 2021 in terms of sport participation? I definitely think so. I think um, I think it'll trickle down into sport participation. I think it'll trickle down into all of it, whether it's racing or training. I think it'll trickle down. And I think part of it is I, I use this example um, on my social media post. This was a few days ago where and this may be too harsh of, of language uh, to use. And Lisa, you let me know if I should back up off it or not. But um, the the level of language that I used was that. Um, whether it's, you know, being black, being a black woman, being a black triathlete, I feel as if we have been in an extremely abusive relationship for a very long time with someone we love. Mm 
whether that's being in this abusive relationship with the U.S. and we love our country or being in this relationship with exclusionary context of triathlon, even though we love triathlon so much or any other type of endurance sport. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yes, I think it will trickle down, but it's a matter of what do we want to do about it? You know, do we want to, are, are we going to ignore where we've been for years and just perpetuate it? Or do we love it enough to say, Hey, we're going to make some serious changes so that we can both remember the past, but also develop and change beyond the past. Um, because as much as a lot of people say they want to forget 2020, I don't think that's wise. So, right. you know, how do we hold it at the same time while developing beyond it? Mm-hmm. You know, th- that I think that it's something to be said for holding it all at the same time, which is tough to do. Yeah, I don't think that's too strong or an extreme of a connection that you're making. I mean, (laughs) abusive relationships are about power and control and maintaining a pattern of coercion, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that that's absolutely Mm -hmm. a good way to describe how the United States um, has engaged with and treated Black and African-American people and other um, folks of color, right? I I actually think that's a really good comparison. Um, and I, I just love the way you framed that and shifted that over to triathlon, right? That you love triathlon um, or endurance sports or cycling, running, whatever that is for you. And yet the relationship you have with it, it, it doesn't see you, right? Right. That's right. That's right. You, right. Mm-hmm. Whether explicitly or implicitly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I look at, you know, for example, (laughs) the struggle is real. I can give you something as simple as wetsuits, for example. I could go down the laundry list of women of color or women of different body types who have cried a river, whether it's angry tears or frustrated tears or excluded tears Mm -hmm. of how we can't even find a wetsuit that fits the dimensions of a curvier woman or the quote-unquote non-traditional body type etc it's almost everything about it tells us that we did not consider you when we when we built this sport out We, we just didn't consider you and and that's I wouldn't say that's intentionally malicious I'm just saying that that's how it was built it was not built right with right us in mind. And so what happens? So then you got people that are buying two-piece wetsuits where it's they get a top half and a bottom half because they know that a regular um, wetsuit is not going to fit them. Or, you know, it could be lots of different, uh, a swim cap. How many people have not thought about a swim cap? Well, what if I'm a person who has hair down to their waist? Maybe I'm a black person who has dreadlocks, for example, and I need something that holds thicker hair, et cetera. And I have to pay double or triple to find something that accommodates me. And if I go to a race where they require me to wear a swim cap, I can almost guarantee you that it's not going to work for me. And that might compromise my safety if it's not the right color, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's literally a building that was not built for particular groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do we hold on to that, but then build out from where we were. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking about, I'm not an architect, but. I'm imagining that, you know, when you build, when you build anything, you do have plans, you know, you have drafted plans that were created for it. But even when you demolish a building, you still look at those originally drafted plans to see, okay, where's the the load bearing beams here and, you know, the structure so that you can tear it down and build something better or partially tear it down and add to what's left. And all of that, I think, needs to happen. And, and it can't unless we really tell the full story. 
if we're just telling one story, then we're only going right. to get a, a building or a structure that's built uh, strong for one group and not for many. Yeah. So that memory piece, right? So what's remembered, who's remembered, how is it remembered is really important. And I think mm-hmm. that um, for me, everything that you're saying just reaffirms why I think endurance sport is a microcosm of U.S. society in a U.S. context, obviously. Um And that there is just no way that we can argue the point that endurance sport is different and separate from the world that we live in, right? To move through 2021 and re-engage in racing and training as things start to open up again as a white person and to forget um, about what happened in 2021 and how your friends and colleagues of color were on edge in terms of their um, space and location and safety. Like, I think that would just be a travesty. Um, It's the easy road for white people to forget that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because again, you know, what, what history do we get taught and who teaches it? Um, Oh yes, absolutely. That, that that reminds me of that book uh, by James Lowen lies. My teacher told me, um, which I think is, the most incredible, incredible book. So a lot of people want to jump over to um, (laughs) white fragility and, you know, Ibram Kendi's how to be an anti-racist, et cetera. I tell a lot of folks who try to be a little bit too ambitious with their work. They need to go back to James Lowen's book on um, (laughs) lies. My teacher told me because it fills in much of the American public education history that we don't get. Um, It fills in all of that. And, um, I think that's the case here where do we want to be in a position where we're constantly filling in history that we strategically chose to forget, mm-hmm. you know, we strategic strategically chose to forget, or we strategic strategically chose to forget or exclude certain voices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How will 2020 be taught in 20 years, or maybe 2016 right. to 2020, but specifically 2020, and the end, at the end of 2020, early 2021, you know, how will that be taught yes. to our great grandchildren? Yes, absolutely. Well, and you know, that's what I absolutely loved about this story that I read. This was a couple of days ago, where the Cherokee Nation was, as many communities are, they're trying to parse out who receives the COVID-19 vaccines first. And, you know, oftentimes it's their, you know, medical communities, or it might be teachers, whomever. They have chosen as the primary folks to receive the vaccine first. They are those that carry the oral tradition. So those, because again, you have a tribe that is trying to hold on to their oral history um, until more recently in their history, they started to actually write their language down, if you will. But the majority of their history, it was all oral. And so for them, they cherish the oral tradition and they cherish the what I believe it was 2000 people that are left that actually speak the Cherokee language. They prioritize them. And so they've said that those individuals have the opportunity to receive the vaccine first. And so you know, I'm, I'm constantly wondering, because that's one of the great things about working at a university, you actually have libraries, librarians, archivists, who can dig up things of the past. And one of the first things that my university did was look back at, you know, how did we as an institution of higher education, how did we handle this when we had 
the plague? Well, how do we, you know, how did we handle previous pandemics and what was said? And I thought it was so interesting that, yeah, there were a few things said and there were a few photos taken. However, there was lots that was unsaid. So there are pictures of people sitting in masks watching a football game at my university back then. However, that's one story or one perspective of many. You know, how can we be the ancestors of the future to pass down a fuller story of what's happening right now and what lessons we want to get out of it? Um, and, and I don't know how to do that well, but I do think that we need to figure out what's going to be our oral traditions. What do we want to remember from this time period and what do we want to use to frame the future of the sport, the future of the country, the future of all the things that connect with what we've experienced in the last year? Because I think it would just it would literally waste the year. All that we went through last year and we just want to forget it. Mm, I, I know some of it is painful, but what lessons can we carry forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important question because how many times have I seen on social media or heard people say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that 2020 is done. I want to forget it. It was a dumpster fire, flush it down the toilet or you know, various comments similarly. <laughs> exactly. um, but you're right, like that would be a problem. And then we have to really make sure that as we are remembering 2020, um, that we're doing so in a full and rich way, right? Whether that is ensuring that um, the spoken word and oral history is maintained generationally, or whether that is ensuring that people's stories of um, all racial identities and ethnicities are written down and documented and stored somewhere. Um, I think we need to do that. Um, you know, and I'm just trying to think like, who is controlling that narrative? Who is controlling what gets remembered um, in terms of libraries and museums mm. and archivists, like you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And how do we, as endurance sport athletes and leaders, how do we um, ensure that that richness, that fullness is remembered within the context of endurance sport? Right, right. Because we have a track record of not remembering lots of that stuff, right? So, you know, we have a track record of not remembering, you know, lots of things within our sport, you know, who is the first African American to finish this distance, or who was the first Latinx person to do XYZ, or, you know, even with the media, I mean, we, we've harped on this many times, Lisa, about um, publicity and marketing and how we only see certain shades and certain colors and certain body types, even uh -huh. in the photos of endurance sport. And so all of that tells a story. And so I, I have literally participated in races where I finished the race, I know that there were at least a hundred people of color there because the majority of them were on my, in, in my tribe club. And I look back at the local news coverage and media coverage, and I don't see a one of them in any picture anywhere who told that story because it's an incomplete one. They, yeah. they didn't tell the full story. Um, and so I, I think you're right. It's, you know, we have to prioritize the perspectives of various stories because the, the goal is, I would say, to try to tell a more complete story. I'm not sure if it can be completely full um, and the whole story told. I would love that. That's the ideal. But how can we tell a fuller story than what we've told in the past? Because that has not been the case of a full story. Right, right. And all that's done is just perpetuate ex perpetuated exclusion, right? So mm -hmm. if we continue as a community 
to, you know, try and separate sport from, you know, the cultural world in which it lives. Mm -hmm. And we fail to remember the effects of 2020, then Mm -hmm. that is just going to perpetuate the exclusion and lack of representation um, in mm-hmm. endurance sport moving forward. It's just, yep. it's just like a self-fulfilling. That's right. Prophecy, I suppose. That's right. Yep. And, you know, uh, questioning how we communicate who participates in the sport. So for example, I think about it all the time. Yeah. We always show the doggone pictures of who won the race and who won their age group, et cetera, et cetera. But do we tell the full story? Like some of the fullest stories that I know of, and maybe it's because I'm back there, but some of the fullest stories that I know are the people that are bringing up the rear because they're the people that have a story about race or ethnicity or ability or um, learning style, mental health, et cetera. They have all of these stories. And so, and, and I'm not, <laughs> one of my friends said to me the other day, she said, Shauna, you just discriminate against fast. That That's the group that you can, you are, are always discriminating against. It's like the, the fast people don't count. It's everybody else. And I, part of me is kind of countercultural in that way is that I'm not hating on you if you're fast. Congratulations. And there are other stories to tell in addition to fast. Right. Right. And so what are those stories? Because I want to hear them. We hear fast stories all the time because that's been the story since day one. That, that's been the story. Um, and so, you know, yes, I realized that, you know, such and such finished in XYZ time. Congratulations. I also want to hear the story of the person that DNF'd five irons because they frankly didn't care about time and they were simply trying to keep their mental health intact. They had 17 deployments to Iraq and et cetera, et cetera. Those are the stories that I want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's significant. So who's telling the story and what stories are most valuable? Sometimes I think the stories that are most valuable are mm-hmm. the stories that are either white, white and male, or the stories that are fast and traditional to the sport. So that, that, and my concern is I want to hold that. I don't want to get rid of it, but I do want to tell these other stories. So what does it mean to be of a certain weight and finish a triathlon for the first time? Or what does it mean? Like, like my story, which a lot of people know my story, what does it mean to not know how to swim at all until you're 35 and then do a half iron? Like, what does that mean? Because that is a fuller story. And we've been kind of cheating ourselves on this story. And so I think, you know, the, the Cherokee nation has a, a point to, you know, how are we going to hold this oral tradition tradition in ways that tell a fuller story um, mm-hmm. that doesn't center whiteness all the time or white maleness or speed. Yeah. And then getting to this point where because our default narrative, our default history and storytelling is diverse, rich, and full, it no longer becomes um, a point to name uh, this person who is heavier, um, this person who is Latinx, this person who uses a wheelchair, right? Like as distinct yes. from what yes. is quote unquote normal for the sport, which would be the white male, right? Like mm-hmm. there's, cause we don't talk about whiteness and maleness when we highlight white men, but when we highlight women, we talk about women. When we highlight people of color, we talk about race. When we highlight, um, people with disabilities, we talk about the disability, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there's a, there's an example of the disability piece 
very recently with the young man who finished the Ironman back in November, right? Ah, yes, um, who, yes. Who has Down mm. syndrome. And so that's probably a topic for another, right. <laughs> another podcast. But, you know, right. like that was what that was. That was the defining piece that our sport triathlon picked up. Like mm-hmm. nothing else was important. Everything else about him fell away. It was that's just right. that piece, right? right. Um. And, and it was named, right? And so I think that there's there's a good and the bad to that, but I think overall it's not it's not helpful. Yeah, it's not helpful. It's only one perspective. And you know, I think what's what's interesting is, okay, so given this, we have a couple things to think about. We have to think about whose voices have been lifted up, whose voices have been excluded how do we highlight those voices and how do we highlight diverse voices in diverse ways? Right. So it's not just the written, like, you know, it, I, I've for, I'm going to pick on one particular group. Okay. I've written for triathlete magazine. That's fantastic, but that's not the only way to hold a history or an experience. So how can we add other experiences to be held in different ways? You know, what if there is an archive of uh, everything, whether it's, video clips or whether it's audible clips or whatever it may be, how are we going to archive multiple experiences in multiple ways so that we don't just center whiteness? Like we, there were even some uh, comments about how, I think this was a couple of years ago, um, where Iron Man was only on one channel in particular, or it was only on Facebook live, or there, there was just only one or two ways to even access the viewing of our sport. Well, what are we saying about the access and how the story is told? And I remember specifically, I had a major complaint about one particular year where they didn't show too much at all other than like the top five of everybody. And even that top five were mostly men. They showed, which I despise, they showed mm-hmm. Swiss Miss once and that was it. I despise them calling her that. Um, but you could even tell in the coverage that only certain people were valued. And so how do we question that and challenge it on a regular basis? What voices are are being excluded um, and the delivery method of them being excluded? Yeah. And I think we can learn from what we're observing that's happening, um, you know, outside of sport right now, like, you know, critically looking at whose stories are being told with what happened at the Capitol on Wednesday, um, you know, what's getting highlighted and what isn't and how are people treated based on their race um, vis-a-vis previous protests. Um, And I do think endurance sport can learn from that. Like they can learn how not to do it, but there's also examples of how to do it well, right? Um, And it's all all in service of Mm decentering privilege, decentering whiteness, decentering maleness. And I, I, I just, you know, I just want to say again for the skeptical people out there who probably aren't actually listening to this podcast, <laughs> that, you know, we cannot extricate endurance sport from our social, cultural, political, economic environment. We just can't, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're intertwined and right. it's wrong of us to do that. And I think there are lessons there um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, when we look back on this, mm-hmm. you know, how are we representing what happened? Well, and let me add to that too, that ignorance is not bliss. We've said this multiple times. Um, but what I think does happen is that it, it oversimplifies the experience of being in an endurance sport community. 
Um, and, and part of it is what we've talked about before with proximity. Um, I, I had a really good uh, colleague of mine simply say that she still feels patriotic, but also feels as if this country is the most selfish country on the planet. Um, part of it is because of democracy and being a, being able to have certain freedoms, but other of it is having the freedoms and feeling more strongly about the freedom than the community in which the freedom functions. Right. So, you know, I have the freedom to do X, Y, and Z. However, I'm so free that even if it harms someone else, I don't have to care about that. Um, and so we, we had a very frank conversation even about um, masking and how masking was marketed last year. I, I have been saying it kind of tongue in cheek, but I really do mean it. If the marketing had been wear your mask, save yourself and save your family, I think things would have gone a little bit differently versus wear your mask and be neighborly, then that's two different things. And I think people, they didn't want it to be community. They wanted it to be self. And so it became more important that I'm not going to wear a mask because I have the right not to. I don't give a crap about your 90-year-old grandmother. I have a right not to wear one, and I want to continue exercising my right despite whatever may come within the community. And I don't want endurance sport to get to that place where we continue to exercise rights um, that disenfranchise others in ways that they don't have to think about. And then, you know, it's so ironic we say this oh, we love the sport. We want the sport to grow, but forget the people of color. Um, excuse me. There's only but so many white folks you can recruit to endurance sport. You got to look at everybody else. And so, you know, I, I think it's kind of an oxymoron to say, I want the sport to grow, but only grow for certain people, not for everybody. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I want the sport to grow with people who look like me. That's the classic example of meritocracy. I want it to grow with people who look right. like me, but not with anyone else. That's yeah. Is that really growth or is that replication? That's two different things. Yes, it's replication. And all it does is continue to bake in the exclusion. And, you know, with that, the fear of athletes of color um, to participate, to train, you know, the abuse that um, they experience. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, and I, yes. you know, so that's why we can't forget 2020. We can't forget the lessons and of early 2021 also. Right. And probably mm. all the way into 2021. Cause honestly, this pandemic isn't going anywhere soon. So that's right. You know, I, I, you know, I think, I hope this is helpful for folks is, you know, we've kind of talked about this, talked about memory, history, how we talk about it, how, <clears throat> the lessons of last year and this year can be understood in an endurance sport uh, context. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, I'm always a big fan of lessons learned. I'm also a big fan of, of oral traditions and oral histories. And I think, you know, we have to kind of go back to that whole uh, Angela Merkel, Eli Wiesel conversation we've had before where, you know, as, as Germany did not want to forget what actually happened in those concentration camps and the future holding that at the same time, I think we need to not forget what has happened in 2020 while holding, because it, it shapes our future. It shapes it. It's, it's like skipping over this big piece that shapes everything and the reason why we do it. And so if our, you know, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, et cetera, look back And they're like, why do we do things the way we do? And we've just completely skipped over 2020 and left that whole thing out, which would be a huge explanation as to why we do things. That's incomplete history. 
Right. And the fear of missing those lessons that, that concerns me as much as I would like to, um, forget the trauma that 2020 put on a lot of people. I do want to remember the good things that I want to hold on to, but also, you know, what do we get out of it? Why, why uh, dare I say suffer? Why suffer like that in 2020 and not walk away with something valuable? Mm -hmm. There's some nuggets in there. There is. And let's just throw that out to our audience. If you have some nuggets, if you can think of lessons from 2020 that would be applicable to endurance sport, um, you know, send us an email, info at unfazedpodcast.com. Um, send us a voice message. We would love to hear from you. And this is all part of the oral history, right? This podcast is part of oral history. If you send us a voice message, that will be mm-hmm. part of oral history. It will be documented. Um, Absolutely. And so I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and then in the, uh, in the vein of inclusivity, send it to us any way that you would like, whether it's written, yes. whether it's oral, yes. whether <laughs> it could be anything, it could be ASL, whatever it is, and we will work it out, but send it to us. Um, and we want to hear what you think about this, but what's the oral tradition we want to hold on to? There's some, some things to hold on to that we don't want to forget. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.